this week on the Back Table Podcast. In my personal opinion, we just don't have the manpower for vascular surgeons to take care of all these patients. And then to try to, to divide us like that, I just think was wrong. And I think we can do a better job. And, you know, if you take a look at where the majority of the vascular surgeons are, they're all in large cities. I've worked in the middle of the country, albeit in a big city, Dallas, Texas, but I got a lot of referrals from areas that were two, three, four hours away that had no vascular surgeons and everything was being cared for by general surgeons, radiologists, and cardiologists, for which there are a lot more than there are vascular surgeons. And until we can get a a larger group of vascular surgeons to say, I want to go out and work in a town of 20,000 with the nearest referring city three hours away, uh, I think we have to be more inclusive for the management of peripheral arterial disease and, and CLTI and really work as a group. There's just too many of these patients to manage, and the OBL and the ASC can take care of these patients in a much more efficient way than a hospital, and the government is pushing it towards that. All we need is probably some regulations, some changes in the payment, and these systems actually, I think, can work very, very well for these patients in the, in the long term. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. Our guests today are Dr. Sahar Sabri, Chief of Interventional Radiology at MedStar Health in Washington, D.C., and Dr. Frank Arco, Chief of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery at Atrium Health in Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Our topic today uh, is the recent New York Times article about PAD treatment that was published a few weeks ago. Uh, It was entitled, They Lost Their Legs, Doctor and Health Giants Profited. Um, For those who maybe haven't read it or haven't heard about it, it was an above-the-fold article about um, peripheral arterial disease treatment in an outpatient-based lab by an interventional cardiologist. And that's kind of really ignited a lot of controversy within our specialties. Um, And so we wanted to bring these guys on today to talk about it. So I'll just start with Sahar first. How did you first become aware of this article? Twitter. So yeah. <laughs> I mean, as, I mean, as soon as it, as it, you know, I was published, we knew about it, and my flo- phone started blowing up. You know, everyone started texting me, "Did you see this?" So um, oh man, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's you know pretty quickly in this day and age. You know, people know about these things quickly. So um, yeah, so we knew about it as soon as it happened, and and I just read it and. Um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about how, how I felt about it, but uh, but just yeah, immediately. You know, uh, as soon as as it happened, we we all knew about it. How about you, too, Frank? Twitter, Twitter's where you first found out. Uh, interestingly enough, I had someone email me—not actually email me—text me the article pre-publication. Uh, oh. a vascular surgeon. I won't give the name away. Very interesting. Okay, so you kind of saw it before everybody else. So, what was your initial personal reaction to it? You know, I think my first sort of um, thought was, you know, I think there's probably some amount of activity that is nefarious in some of the OBLs. Uh, I thought this article was a bit sensationalized, to be honest with you. I think that the majority of uh, OBLs from all specialties, and as a disclaimer, I don't have an OBL. I have a very good working relationship with uh, vascular surgeons that do have OBLs, 
But, um, and I, you know, I sort of knew a lot of the people that were within the article. Um, mm-hmm. Those that uh, were sort of maybe uh, a little bit disparaged uh, in the article. So the, the primary operator of that OBL, who I know just a little bit, I wouldn't say I'm an acquaintance or a friend. I not going to make any comment as to what the care is given up there because frankly I just don't know I do think that he's technically a very gifted uh, interventionalist Uh, I don't know what his indications are and I thought that uh, some of the vascular surgeons that were quoted within the article were a bit harsh in their evaluation of what was going on uh, within that OBL and the reason I say that is because I I just think that, you know, it's easy to be a bystander and sit on the side and, and you know, give, give an opinion as to what you think. But when you're looking at an article that is going after someone like this, I think that most of it should be based on, you know, a bit more fact huh. uh, and, and an understanding of, of the numerators and the denominators and all these sorts of things. And that, that was sort of my first opinion opinion of the of the article sort of pre-publication yeah and and um how about you sarah I, I think i talked to you the day it came out and you definitely had some strong feelings about it yeah i mean i you know i think it i think it was a, uh, a missed opportunity i mean this this disease process pad clti is something that the public doesn't know much about it we all struggle with you know what to name it how to present it to patients and such and and to kind of get onto, you know, a first page or about the fold of, uh, you know, New York Times and to get this much publicity, my hope was it was in a different, you know, setting, you know, and, you know, pointing out the disparities in, in amputation and, you know, you know, poor limb salvage, you know, in, in certain parts of the country and, and certain populations, especially minorities, the issue of poor access to uh, revascularization prior, prior to amputation. I mean, these are the main issues that affect our field and educating patients of what to do if they hear they have, you know, ar- arterial disease in their legs, you know. So I was hoping that, you know, they can use that platform even if they kind of highlighted some of the, as, as, as Frank was saying, the you know, sensational aspect of it or dramatic aspect of it. The hyperbole that was in there, you know, fine. They have to do this for the, you know, shock and awe effect of 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 the, you know, the media and, and journalism. Fine. Um, they want to get clicks and they want to get eyeballs on their on their paper. But you know, there was a lot in there that we could have basically then high then shifted and highlighted the other aspects that w- what we what we can do to do it. And and I was hoping everybody who was quoted in the article to focus on that piece. But it ended up being mostly just going after people and um you know uh, just you know it was mostly personal attacks and with not a, a ton of facts i mean there's some things in there that you know number of of interventions on one patient fine but you know as a patient with who came with a claudication or asymptomatic then 14 years later had an amputation or a patient came in the first the first uh, sentence in the in, in in it it said it started with a festering wound right i mean it's a it's a CLTI yeah, right. patient <laughs> the very first word of sure. the article so it's a CLTI population that end up patient end up losing their you know the leg in a year and a half and then you know having a picture of somebody who's losing their leg and I mean as we sympathize of course we don't know a lot of the stories of what happened and why this many interventions were done and some of them were bypasses some of them were endovascular but regardless that's not the point it's it's just trying to 
you know, highlight a, a, a story of CLTI in a, in a bad way, but didn't put any kind of like perspective on it, what else can be done. Yeah. And, you know, so that's, that was my, my right. first impression. It was just a missed opportunity and just going down, just to trying to have a, you know, sensational article and more than anything else. So then you were probably getting blown up, each of you respectively, from your individual bubbles of people texting back and forth about the article or talking on Twitter. So what were some of the initial responses from within your bubble? Saw her, like I'm specifically thinking about like from the other Viva folks or other IRs. What what kind of uh, responses did you see? Yeah, I mean, I mean, just to be clear, I'm I'm here representing myself only, so I'm I speak on my sure, behalf, yes. and I don't any <laughs> organization for it. So just to be clear, so but definitely, yeah, you speak Absolutely. to old people's or you know people that you you associate with, and and same Frank, uh, you know, same way, and and everybody else who's been in the field. So uh, yeah, I mean, I speak to a lot of people who just start texting me and and, and talking about it. I mean, the general sentiment um, was, let's be cautious about you know what it is let's let the dust settle let's just you know you know being on this is should not be resolved on social media and uh we just have to kind of see what the reactions are before doing anything major so that's mostly you know the reactions have been um a lot of people were definitely upset about this is gonna scare people away from seeking care when they have pad especially clti for sure and may scare them away from obls which for the record, I think it's a great way to provide fast and efficient service, notwithstanding that there's some major issues and some bad actors and, you know, that then we, we know, and it's not just in the RTL side, also in the Venus side and overstenting and things like this. So we know that there are issues, but that's a current platform that we have and it, and it's there and it pro- lot, there's a lot of providing a lot of great service. So the worry was it's going to scare people away. And, um, I, you know, so that, that was probably one of the biggest you know, message I heard from people. And then, uh, Frank, I felt like the vascular surgery response to this on Twitter was really split. Um, could you give me a little bit more insight into what you were hearing? Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, I don't know how much it was split. Uh, I mean, I certainly have vascular surgeons on both sides. I would say that a lot of the younger ones uh, who probably have, uh, and I'll be honest with you, I think the younger generation of vascular surgeons are probably a bit more skilled uh, when it comes from a to a percutaneous intervention for the management of CLTI, and I I thought that they were not you know supportive of the article uh, nor the response to the article from the SVS. Uh, I think a lot of the older generation of vascular surgeons, and that might include my generation. I think to be honest with you, I think it's a generation of you know maybe ten years above me. Um, I'm in my 50s. I don't mind saying that. And, you know, they, I think they just have an open bias uh, yeah. to the management of vascular disease. And I, I think there's still maybe a, a bias towards a lot of vascular surgeons with regards to uh, the open reconstruction of these patients. And, and, and I think when it gets down to it, you know, in that article, the very first patient did have critical limb ischemia, right? So she had a, she had a wound. We don't know anything else more about that than she had a wound, but I suspect that she probably had diabetes and had very low toe pressures, and most of her disease was probably tibial. Uh, That's the way that most of our CLI presents, at least in our own practice. And I would say that the majority of those patients, for a 
numerous reasons, are not great candidates for open repair. Sure. And, you know, I I just think it's very split uh, within the vascular surgery community. But, you know, I, I can only speak for myself and those that I know. And I think I have a, you know, good good communications with a large number of vascular surgeons as well as IR and cardiologists. But I think that that, I think the response that the society gave, and I've never made any voice on Twitter what I, my thoughts were with regards to the response. I, I ran a vote and a poll, which had a lot of votes. And, and, you know, I sort of listed the things within that that I thought were reasonable things to conclude from that article. It was excellent. It, it sort of missed the spot or, or it was basically divided the specialties. And I think one of them, it wasn't strong enough. I Personally, I thought in, in different areas of that response, as a vascular surgeon, I sort of thought it hit all of the four that I mentioned. I thought in some ways it was good. I thought in some ways it sort of was maybe a little bit too soft, not specific to that operator or the article, but what's going on in, a, in an OBL or an, or an ASC. And I think we need to be cognizant of that and sort of, you know, look at it from a from multiple societies to say, what's the best way to regulate this to make sure that the majority of these patients are getting great care? And I do think that the majority of them are getting great care. I think, you know, the the operators that are pushing the limits of what needs to be done versus medical therapy is, is probably relatively low. If you read this article, it made everybody that had an OBL or an ASC look like they were just doing, you know, inappropriate cases. But in the end, I, I just thought that it was a little bit, you know, cre- created some anger and some angst amongst other specialties. If I was, if if I was an interventional radiologist or a cardiologist, I would have looked at that response and said, you know, there there are other specialties that can manage this disease. And I think that those other specialties do understand when someone can have an open bypass. I think that those specialties can look and determine whether someone has a, a adequate conduit for a bypass. Uh, I would certainly say that in my own hands that I think that the majority of the patients can actually be managed from an endovascular standpoint. Not all. I mean, if you give me somebody who's got a great vein and they occlude at the common femoral and they don't reconstitute till they're 80 and they've got a four millimeter greater saphenous vein, that probably should have a bypass as long as their other comorbid conditions allow them to have that bypass. But I, I think that sometimes the vascular surgeons will take the last two trials that have been done and then say, you know, we can do this and we can do open surgery. But again, we have to remember that it was a greater saphenous vein that was of good quality. And I would say that the majority of the patients that I treat on, and this gets into your disparities, the the minorities, the majority of those individuals do not have, in my practice at least, do not have an adequate greater saphenous vein. And if you take a look at the trials, when you don't have adequate greater saphenous vein, endovascular is probably equivalent in those patients that need revascularization. 
I'm starting to see, you know, surgeons on that sort of fringe of the 30%. Well, I can get arm vein, some, you know, lesser saphenous vein, splice those together and do a bypass. You might be able to do that. And if you're one of those centers that excels at that, that's great. But the majority of the United States of America, and I'm only going to speak for our country because this article sort of, you know, focused in on the USA, I would say that the majority of centers are not capable of doing that. So that's sort of my thoughts on what's going on currently. Ali, can I add on the vascular surgery response, if you don't mind? Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, um, I, I, I hear what, what you said, um, um, Frank, and I think the uh, about the young vascular surgeons, and I've noticed also that there's a group of young vascular surgeons who are very skilled, who are kind of trying to kind of um, push the agenda of appropriateness, which, I mean, I think there's a lot of, a lot of it is is really great. And there's a lot of great work that was done, especially out of Hopkins, and talking about Claudicans and, and you know, uh, over-treatment of Claudicans. And there's some really great work that was done and showing that there's some 30% of patients who had, Claud- you know, and, and, uh, Claudication had below-knee interventions, which is, you know, something that is That's really, wild. really disturbing to see. So, I mean, there's some bad work is being done. And and in that article, they looked and they saw that the majority of these interventions were done by IR and IC and not by vascular surgeons. So that's what the basic Medicare claims. So there is some some reality to some of this information. So and this stuff was presented and I think, and there's some some other work about overuse of atherectomy. A lot of it is in claudicants. And I think there's uh, increased awareness of this. And I think a lot of the young vascular surgeons who are skilled in both indo and, and open, to be honest with you, now more skilled in indo than open because a lot have not done enough bypasses, are definitely trying to kind of uh, push this agenda, which I think it's there's a lot of good in it. But in in this scenario that happened, since a lot of discussions were on CLTI and such, it was just like almost misplaced, and it was it just came in like very strong on on social media, and then with the SVS uh, president's response, which who I respect a lot, it just missed the mark, and it just came out as divisive as as the you know the whole comprehensive vascular care we the only specialty who can treat the patients you know comprehensively and just like how's not the time to do it it seems like we're already a, a lot of the walls being built a lot of silos being created uh, especially after best cli was published and there's a lot of kind of a lot of bravado was after the study you know and you alluded to all this stuff now in, in what you just said and people trying to kind of you know you know kind of over can exaggerate the results of the of it. It's like oh, and extend it to arm vein and to extend it to to even a, a graft, you know, over endo and all that stuff. So, uh, and and we heard a lot from people. It's like oh, you, you have to offer both, otherwise you should not be treating the disease. So, so it, unfortunately, we're going back to where we were ten and twelve years ago when things were bad because we we've been in a good spot till till these you know articles came about. So. It's kind of unfortunate, and it's unfortunate some of the younger crew, uh, crowd in, um, in vascular surgery are just pushing in that direction as well. And it's not just, so there's kind of like the ones in the middle, um, you know, that's kind of my impression, <laughs> you know, that I worked with a lot. They seem to understand the, the collaboration um, aspects of it. And then the old guard have always been, you know, had this, you know, um, vision um, um, of, of the, you know, protecting the specialty. And it seems to be some of the younger crowd is, are heading in this direction as well. So that was kind of my impression from looking at it. And, and I hope it, it doesn't go into this. And I hope there's more 
kind of discussion across specialties to try to kind of calm things down because we really, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, the patients end up suffering and, and if we start, start having competition between specialties because everyone's going to have to it's something to offer. There's not enough vascular surgeons uh, to treat every single PAD patient in the country. And same goes for IRs and IC. So we know, we know that we, we need all hands on deck. I mean, it's can't all the, the treatments be concentrated in big urban, yeah, urban cities and big centers. We need people to go out in the communities and the small communities and treat them. And then, as you said, I mean, you don't have somebody who can do an arm vein or even a, a, you know, a big distal bypass there. I mean, you need more people who can do endovascular, who can be trained, and you got to lean on your other non-surgical specialties to help with that and outreach, including OBLs. So that's just my comment on the on the response. Would either of you like to comment on the timing of the SVS statement? Um, one of our one of our collaborators had a question. It more of a comment. Seemed like the SVS had an agenda and they had a statement ready very quickly after it came out. Do you care to comment on that? I'll come in first, and then I'll give it to Frank quickly. Are we are we just saying hey, it's. Uh, we have to be careful with these things and not to really push, you know, narratives that we don't know about. Again, but sure. I would say that it was a missed opportunity to get people together. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of, you know, chances to get multi-societies to collaborate and write an article. And it was a missed opportunity to kind of try to kind of, in a way, uh, capitalize on a bad situation in, to service one specialty. At the end of the day, the board of directors of SVS is going to care for their constituents, which is vascular surgeons. But I would say that it was a missed opportunity and it just left a sour, you know, taste, in, you know, for 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 a lot of a lot of people. So, and, and the response to SCLI was somewhat similar as well. So, um, a couple of things back to back were not great. But I would just be careful about narratives because we don't know the details. Yeah, sorry, Frank. Sure. Yeah, I, I would say I don't know the details uh, either. Uh, I am a member of the SDS. I didn't receive any communications about the uh, the response to it. So it was probably a bit more of a board-related response to the New York Times. I think that, you know, when an article comes out and it involves sort of two specialties uh, within the article, uh, I don't don't recall any mention of an interventional radiologist within the article. The article sort of was... uh, Oh, there is one. Uh, So, you know, if you've got three people within the article or three specialties within the article... Personally, I think the response to the article would have been better managed from a combined response from, you know, whatever whatever specialty it is for each one. So if it's the American College of Cardiology, Society of Interventional Radiology, and the Society of Vascular Surgery, I, I think that would have been, one, a, a, a better response. It could have tempered uh, sort of the... You know, there's a multitude of individuals who can who can treat these patients, who have to treat these patients based on the epidemic of CLI and PAD and the number of physicians that we have. And furthermore, the recognition of the disease even even earlier. I mean, us getting CLI patients with festering wounds is is probably a bit too late. We'd like to have those patients uh, prior to the wounds. I think we can sure. do a better job with those patients. So. That would be that would be my sort of response to that. I I thought the SVS response was a was a little bit early. Um, <laughs> maybe if you're going to do it from a single society, 
maybe have it reviewed by a few more people within the society so that it re- represents the society as a whole rather than maybe the the five to 15 people who wrote the response. Very, very good statements about that. A question from the audience. In the best situation possible, even with a quality and outcomes reporting system, how do you avoid this type of political nightmare when you're taking care of high-risk patients as the operator? Yeah, I mean that's uh that's a that's a really tough question. I think when it I think when it comes to, you know, CLI when you're dealing with wounds, at least you know the indication is uh is at least there. I I think as Sahir spoke about a little bit earlier, the vascular surgeons I think get concerned when there is no wound and and where mm-hmm. is this sort of cut off from claudication to limiting claudication to sort of early rest pain. And, you know, I think I think there needs to be, you know, potentially some sort of oversight to to the management of these patients to to prevent that. I mean, again, I don't have an OBL, but I understand the economics of an OBL, and and you know, it there's clearly got to be a conflict for some physicians. I'm not going to say all, but but for some physicians to do to do the right thing, uh, the economic benefit from doing that procedure. And I, I think we just should say what that procedure is. Uh, it's athrectomy, right? So, uh, and I'm not against athrectomy. I do some athrectomy. I wouldn't say I do athrectomy in every case. I'd say mm-hmm. I do it, you know, maybe 20 to 30% of my practice. I don't know if that's too little. Uh, some people might say it's too much. Some people might say it's not enough. I, I think it certainly works for my practice. So, and you know, at some way, there's got to be some oversight of that, you know, economic, that significantly positive economic benefit from doing that procedure sure. uh, in the OBL. Uh, how to govern that, I'm I'm not exactly sure. You know, you'd like to think that every physician is uh, altruistic. Uh, I think that the majority of them are, personally. Uh, I think that there clearly are some some bad actors, but I also know that there is an epidemic of PAD, and if you clearly just focused in on CLI and uh, that population, from the economic side of it, you could still do very well without having to intervene on any claudicants, in my personal opinion. Well, like, um, and when they were talking about atherectomies in the New York Times article, they linked to um, they linked to this Cochrane review, which it, the, I think the let me see if I can get to the page. It says studies have found that atherectomies do not work better than less expensive methods of clearing blockages and restoring blood flow. But when you click on that link, the Cochrane review doesn't say that. It just says um, we need more data studying atherectomy. So did you guys? Was it just me or did you guys feel like the author didn't really understand the difference between claudication and CLI when she wrote this? Yeah, there's there's no question. That was my biggest gripe um, with the article is that it just really lumped everything everything together and um, it just yeah. kept bouncing back and forth and equating the two diseases when everyone who treats a disease knows that how huge of a difference it is. And using atherectomy and CLTI versus, you know, um, versus claudication, instant restenosis versus de novo lesion above knee, below knee. I mean, there's a lot of nuances to it. And it just like lumping all two together is, is a major issue here. And, and again, well, you, know, you know, this this article is not ra- ra- written for the medical community. It's writing for the for general public. And, and you owe it to the general public to be very clear about it. I mean, there's one paragraph in there talking about 
most patients with PID do not need treatment. Medical therapy is enough. Sure. And just brushes over right. that and just jumps again into, you know, kind of attacks and, and, and such, which, and going back to the original question about the complications and how does that, how, how, and how do we deal with it? Because how many of us have not sent a patient for a major amputation? I mean, this, if you have not, this means you are not treating enough CLTI. So, I mean, that's the way it is. You know, 20, 30% of patients end up losing their leg in one, two years. And, you know, it's the way it is. I mean, you know, limb salvage rate and for pedal access at three years is 50%. I mean, it just, uh, amputation for survival is 50%. So, I mean, it just, it's really tough patient population. So it's going to happen. And uh, and, and if, if somebody's going to come and pick them, and, and the article says 42 patients were sent, you know, and this is some claims data from from the insur- their uh, private insurer, 42 mm-hmm. patients had amputation. Well, out of how many patients? What's the denominator? I mean, right. it is. Yeah. And there was still- that was over a pretty long period of time, I think, if I remember the article. I, I want to say it was over about a four or five year period of time. So it's not like there were 45 in a single exactly. year. That that would be a little bit high. But over that time frame, not knowing the number of patients he's treating, it's very difficult to understand what that rate is. I mean, there was self-reported rate of 1.3% and at, at one at one month. Although David said there's also some like stuck wire or something. It could happen. I mean, mm-hmm. so the problem is like if, if, if we all do M&Ms, we all do this. I mean, we all have some, you know, and this is, that's the nature of it. I mean, we make mistakes and this is going to happen. The question is, is this out of the ordinary? Is this something that is outside of the scope of the practice because complications going to happen? And if, and if we're going to um, basically judge our complications in the public arena, it's a, it's a slippery slope. It's a big problem. And if it's a way to people to settle scores and taking it to the media, that's not the way to do it. I mean, if it's it's at the state medical board, it's at the hospital credentialing committees, this is how these are established. And my understanding from the article is that these operators w- were investigated and not a whole lot came out of it. There was some settlement and, and such, and there's no admission of guilt. While I would like to point out the ProPublica article that was published before, which I thought that was a much, much better article that went into a lot of details of overtreatment of claudicans. And it was one example after another of claudicans and asymptomatic patients who just got repeated treatments till they got amputation. I mean, that one is a serious one. It's in my backyard. So, I mean, I've, I've, I've known exactly what's going on there. And it's a big deal. And that person, that, that physician ended up actually, you know, losing their practice and license and all this stuff. Well, in this case, it's a New York, you know, uh, Times article, but but the kind of the governing bodies did not actually conclude that there's some, you know, significantly, you know, um, the behavior was was completely out of, out of the scope. So that being said, there's, you know, some some in there talking about more than a thousand of atherectomy cases by each operator, which, you know, that's pretty high. And in the papers that were published out of Hopkins, which again, I applied the, the authors there for, for some of that work. It just talks about the top three, the 3% who do the majority of the atherectomy, who get the reimbursement the most of anybody else. I mean, it is an issue. There are some who just bill way more atherectomy. They get 90% of the atherectomy reimbursement is in this small tier of, of people. So it tells you that they're clearly overusing it. So to Frank's point, who's going to stop them? Who's going to do it? I mean, CMS may have to come in eventually, but I don't know who's going to do it, how the society is going to do it. How, I mean, I'm not sure what the, what the answer there. Are either of you involved in a OEIS, Outpatient Endovascular Interventional Society? I know them very well, and I spoke to them a lot recently. Yeah. 
they I, they do have a registry for OBL operators just to try and show quality outcomes um, that are comparable. But but you're right. I think you know like a multi society consensus about this or some way to evaluate this just so the the government isn't the one stepping in to do it would be really helpful. <laughs> Let's actually shift over to talk a little bit about the industry discussions in this article. So a large part of the article was focused on um, payments in the OBL. So um, for those who don't know, a lot of times um, like Philips or another device company will offer financing for their products um, when they're using an OBL. Basically, um, a lot of the industry will uh, offer some incentives to to operators to use their products. Yeah, we have those. We we have requests for proposals all the time where if we use 80% of, of their product, let's say it's a balloon, right? then they get a discounted price. So the 20% is that some niche thing. I, I don't know what that term is, but we use it in a, in a large system to decrease the costs. Yeah. I've never really thought about it as an ethical issue, but is that, a, is that an ethical issue to physicians that um, they feel incentivized to use a certain type of product um, to meet a mark? I think that the savings issue is, I mean, uh, we use the same way. We have, you know, these contracting that happen with a lot of, you know, companies and especially when it's a commodity product that there's balloons, that there's several of them. You can use any of them and there's a lot of contracting and they try to yeah. kind of find the best price and we're asked to use a certain one because we get a rebate on it if you use a certain number. And it's, it's basically a contracting. The money goes to the hospital, right? The savings go to the hospital. Sure. While in OBL, it goes to the facility, which is owned by the physician who is who is operating. Well, it's not their fault. I mean, this is the setup. The current setup is the payments, all the work that is done is is going uh, for us is going to the hospital. The technical fees we're giving we're getting a tiny piece of the sli- slice. While in the OBL, they control that and 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 all of it goes to them. So if they negotiate and they get good rates on it, they're at fault. While if the hospital negotiates and the hospital budget, you know, balloons and they're getting all this stuff, then that's fine. So that's something that is just, you know, I mean, why is it, I mean, but that's the current, you know, structure. Now, should we relook at the structure? I don't know, but that, they, I mean, they are playing within the structure that is, there is the reimbursement is, and some people could argue that the OBLs are not well regulated. Now it's a different argument, you know, you can look into it and say, but that's, that's the setup. That's what CMS decided. This is how they're going to pay for it. So people are going to play within the rules of what CMS set. And as long as you're playing within the rules and you're trying to do what's best for your facility and get the best pricing like the hospital does, then you're not you're not at fault. Now, if you're misusing any equipment and you're overusing it over a certain threshold just to get money, that's an issue. Who's going to set up the threshold? Who's going to judge that you're overusing it? That's the issue. So, I mean, we know that some do it. We know that there's 3% who do 90% of this stuff. We know that. But that that's a but the overwhelming majority if they end up cooperating with industry to save money for their facility which eventually comes back to them i'm not so sure that there's a dilemma i don't know, I know frankly i think yeah i mean if you're a business person and you look at this you you got three ways to finance your obl uh, as you build it up right so you can get private equity or vc money uh they have a tendency to take a lot of the money, uh, you could get it from a bank where the interest rates are high, or you could partner with a with a large industry corporation who's who's selling you the um, uh, the equipment. 
I'm not terribly against, you know, again, I don't have an OBL, but if I, if I had one, I wouldn't have a problem partnering, I don't think, with, uh, with a device manufacturing company that has provided me the imaging. I mean, we'll get right to it. It's, it's basically, it's Philips, right? So they have imaging and then they have some devices. Uh, and they have devices that I think, you know, for the most part, work pretty well. They've got a couple of atherectomy devices. They've got very good imaging. Uh, they got some DCB. And if that's what all the OBLs do. They basically get a contract that gives them the lowest amount of prices so that they can maximize their profits. That's called being a good business person. What you have to do, though, is sort of separate out and what's the appropriateness of the care. So I don't have an issue with that. The other issue that we don't really know is, you know, one thing for for those of us in a system, yeah, we we may contract out for a commodity item like a balloon. We all know that there's really no difference in balloons and there's not a whole lot of difference in prices and the savings all go to the system. And again, maybe something to a physician, you know, sort of on the on the back end, uh, not in any nefarious way. But we don't really know what the differences are in outcomes with regards to atherectomy. We've got a multitude of devices. We've got, you know, different different mechanisms of, of action. And a lot of these are priced at a lower rate so that they get used more in an OBL. And it's going to be very difficult for anybody to comment on what's the appropriateness of using a, a atherectomy device that's, let's say, 1000 or $1,500 cheaper, but the reimbursement is the same, but are the outcomes equivalent for the patient? And I do think that these societies, SVS, SIR, ACC, all need to probably come together and say, maybe we do need to do some sort of randomized trial with regards to different atherectomy devices so that we know which one is actually worthwhile. That's what the cardiologists do on the, on the heart side, and they do it very, very well. Uh, they run large trials where on the peripheral side, we just don't have a whole lot of data to say what is appropriate and what's not appropriate. We've got new devices coming left and right. I will say that it is a little bit like the wild, wild west out there on the peripheral side and that you can pretty much do whatever you want based on economics to say this is what I do and this is what I think are great outcomes. But we don't know that for sure from a, from a, a true data side. I mean, we live in a world of a fee-for-service, and, and this is the way it is. So, I mean, you know, if a patient doesn't do well and come back to you, you treat them again, and you just get more money, and there's no, it's not value-based. So this is, this is the system that is, that is created and incentivizes, and people are working within the framework. Some of them are pushing it quite, quite a bit. But definitely, there's no question the most use of atherectomy is in the OBL because the reimbursement is favorable. And, um, and, and if you ask somebody, to, and I've known people who did not work in the OBL, who did not use it much when they used the OBL, they used it a lot. They went back to the hospital, didn't use it much. I mean, it's just, there's no question that it will cloud your judgment. The fact that you know that you're going to get the full payment for it, and it's like, there's not much harm in it. The issue becomes appropriateness of use, establishing a complication rate. That would be that what was needed, and and I think I agree with with Frank's. Doing this will be great. I don't know if it's ever going to happen. You know, the companies have to all come right. together, but they don't have any incentive to actually do this. So, 
it is gonna yeah. be, it's always gonna be uh, an issue. And I think the pathway that these were approved for was, was not great, you know, to be honest with you. They just get on the market very easily with, with, a, with a very low entry, um, basically bar. So, so it is an issue and there's no question there's an overuse. The other issue that I have with some of this equipment and industry relations in, in, in uh, OBL is we know now the paclitaxel issue is, is behind us. I hope people believe that. Um, Unless you've been on that rock, that paclitaxel doesn't is not doesn't cause mortality anymore. Uh, please believe that. So, if that's the case, uh, it's the best treatment for patients. And if you're not going to use it in the OBL because it's too expensive and you don't get reimbursement for it, which is true, and you're going to withhold it from the patient because it's too expensive for you, I have a problem with that. In a DCB, for example, in a um, in a fistula, and it's been shown to be superior to regular angioplasty. If you want to withhold it from the patient because it's too expensive, or anything else, you want to withhold it for economic reason because it's too expensive from the OBL. Well, you're getting you're making decisions, financial decisions, the other way by overusing a thorectomy because it works well for you. So, this is one of my big ethical dilemmas. And I had a lot of discussions with my colleagues and my former trainees who work in OBL, and and I just asked this truly is, I mean. I, I keep probing it, and I know there, are, there is an issue here. And there's a decision that is based on economics of what device to use for the patient, and that is a problem. While it's many times in the hospital, it's less of an issue. Um, you would truly try to use what is best because it just eventually gets lost in the shuffle. So and it's not an attack if anybody from Dobiel is going to come after me after saying this, but I would you know, challenge anybody to tell me that it's never factored into in their decision, and that is part of the major issue with the current reimbursement structure of, of OBLs. Sure. No, all really good points. What One big concern from the New York Times article is that insurance companies can use the article as a reference to start denying prior auth and payments for services that are especially for people who are treating PAD in the OBL. Apparently, this is already happening. Dr. Krishnamanava sent us an example of a patient that happened to him very recently after the article. Anybody care to comment on that? Well, you know, it, it sort of makes sense a little bit because uh, they're sort of probably a little bit curious as to the appropriateness of care of some of these patients. The problem is you just don't know which patients actually will need another intervention in a relatively quick fashion like i i would be i would i would wish i could say that i do an intervention i've never had to do another intervention on that same leg within 6 months but but we all know that that would be false you know for for a variety of reasons maybe they need to be on anticoagulation they've been on it and they can't sure. afford their anticoagulation thing thrombose whatever it is and that, that is going to be a problem. I, I think this comes down to how, how we pay for these patients. And, you know, it's it's certainly going in that fashion, you know, on the orthopedic side in which you have bundled care for, for you know, uh, the care of a, of a leg uh, or a vessel, uh, you know, over a month, over a six-month period of time, over a year period of time. But I, and I think that's going to come, and I think it should probably come a little bit sooner. And I think that would then force a lot of the individuals within the hospitals and in OBLs to to do the right thing to try to get the longest, you know, patency that we can for those vessels. Uh, but I agree this fee for service is going to be an issue because it sort of pushes you to do the intervention maybe a little bit quicker. I mean, those would be my thoughts on that. Hmm. It's unfortunate that somebody's going to have to come and regulate 
and the worst to come and regulate this whole thing is insurance companies. <laughs> so, right. so that's the, <laughs> the worst thing that we could uh, that that we could um, um, that could come out of it. But but definitely the, the moving into something that is value based, that is, you know, yeah, treatment of a you know you get reimbursed this X amount of money for a a segment or a leg, you know, or an artery over six months, and if you have to come back again, it's on you, you know, for not using you know appropriately doing the, the right thing but it, it can happen so you may win some you lose some so i mean that's i think something along these lines would be great and it's going to be tied to payments of course cms may do it on their own but we could help them you know get to that level but the but it's it's a you know far-fetching goal of course but but that would be a more it would have been a more ideal scenario that being said i could easily see the issues of if uh, you know dr x treats the patient that doesn't have a good outcome then they send him to dr y and now you for the, for you the free inherit, case, yeah. <laughs> now you inherited a patient that you want to treat, but you're not going to get paid for because they already reached their maximum. You know, you're treating them within a month. So I mean, there's all these issues that are, you know, fraud with 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 that. That is not you know because it's a different pay. You know, so there's all these things that need to be resolved and and, and such. But there's no question that this that it needs an overhaul. I mean, the way we pay for. Uh, these services need need to be overhauled. I mean, just the fact that you just get paid this much more in an OBL than in, than in an, you know, a, um, a hospital is an issue. And the fact that, you know, repeated interventions are to your favor, uh, not against you, is a major, major issue. And, um, you know, it has to change somehow, somewhere. What would you do if you were the physician discussed in this article? Yeah, I mean, I'd probably the way I would answer is if this was, if I was, uh, you know, jihad, you know, what would I do? I, I'd have to, you know, I'd have to have some introspect and, and decide whether or not I was actually doing the right thing. You know, that's what I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, I suspect he saved a lot of limbs. I suspect that he's trained a lot of people to do a, you know, some pretty advanced endovascular procedures. I've seen him operate, you know, in live cases, um, uh, I think he's got a very good skill set. The appropriateness, I cannot comment on. But you know, I think if if you deep down feel like you're doing the right thing and your appropriateness is good, and you know your first case is you know that that they present in New York Times as a CLI patient that loses her leg, eighteen months later. I mean, that's happened to almost all of us. I w- I would imagine. So, uh, you know, that's he's got to deal with that. I think you know time will heal, and and I think if he's doing the wrong thing, you know, then I. I think that societies, you know, and, and specifically the ACC, which is his society, should probably go in there uh, and and do an evaluation of what's going on. Although it looks like that was already done. He had a, a small fine, required, I think, a little bit of education. The fine wasn't, you know, I frankly, I've never been fined, so I don't, I don't, I, I don't want any fine. But, you know, it wasn't the worst fine I've ever seen compared to the ProPublica who is no longer a practicing physician. So I've got to think that the board has an understanding of what's going on a little bit better than what we're doing. And I would just probably ride that out. It appears that there's some, you know, local politics going on in the area that I, that I, I, I think I can sort of see from the article, but I, I don't really comment on it. I don't have any personal relationship with any of the individuals there but that's sort of how I would go on it you know you could also get to the you know to a legal response about it you know if you really want to fight it hard and you think that there's some injustice to the article then you would then you would go to that next step I would imagine 
I mean, I think we're all gonna have we're all gonna have complications, and I think if if your complications are mischaracterized, and I think you just need to uh, show your data, and I think these need to be litigated in the proper way, not on on, on media pages where you know maybe journalists who don't quite understand the nuances of it. Uh, there's no question. There's some local politics that played into it. I totally agree. Clearly, you can see that. So uh, I would say that uh, you have to come, you know, with 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 your data and see what your outcomes are, and and be very clear about it. And have to defend uh, your practice. I mean, I think that's what I would do. You know, show. I mean, we've all had issues with complications, and you, you get investigated by your hospital to start with, and care committee is like, is this procedure too risky? You guys have two complications in the last six months, you know, and then you're just like, okay, you know, we've been doing this for, you know, ten years. We just had. Yeah. Two bad outcomes last six months. And, you know, these are the steps we're going to do to make sure this doesn't happen again. I mean, this is how these things are addressed. And if it's too much, then it goes to the medical board and then they look into it and there's if there's misuse, then, then it gets. So that, that's the way it should be done. And I think that's how, I mean, I think I would address it as like what was done on by the, and I, thought, and I don't think the societies, unfortunately, have a whole lot of say, the professional societies, whether it's Sky hmm. or ACC for the cardiologists or or SIR, you know, or, or SBS to try to govern the physicians. You know, the, the physician that was mentioned in the ProPublica article or the vascular surgeon uh, was not a member of SBS. So, I mean, it's you don't have a whole lot of ability to to govern that from a society perspective. Unfortunately, it's the state medical boards and the who are going to govern it because if you're not credentialed at a hospital, so the hospital can do anything. If you have an OBL, they're not really that regulated. And I agree that we need to have better regulation over the OBLs. And it's literally just left to the state medical boards now as the only mm. group that can do much about it. And I, I agree with the calls from a lot of people that we need to have better regulation. And OEIS is a, is a voluntary organization. They're you know, excellent people who are trying to do the right thing and the registry is voluntary. So the ones who don't want to participate, they're not going to participate and they don't care. So That's a good point. Good point. Yeah. Any other comments that we haven't really touched on about the article. Anything that made you really mad or really upset? I want to talk about the the the, the arg more. They're going to be coming more responses coming from other societies who decided to write it out. And so there's going to be multi-specialty yeah. response. It's going to be probably by the time you guys listen to this, probably it's going to be out by a lot of societies are coming together to try to kind of okay. write a response in a better way. That is kind of you know talks in a in a, the whole try to hit the main points of you know. CLTI, pa patient education, you know, education of the public, uh, you know, pre different presentations, appropriateness of use, and and uh, you know the ability of all specialties to care for the patient as long as they practice appropriately. This is like the framework what is going to be discussed. So I think that should be a positive thing. There's also um, a lot of groups who talk about healthcare disparities are going to come out with notes about this and, and maybe comments about it and try to kind of maybe use it, try to kind of, you know, get some, you know, lemonade out of lemon. Basically, if it's, this is, there's some, <laughs> you know, there's some publicity about it, maybe try to kind of try to push hard to talk about the disparities that they're going on. And there's a lot of work that's done by the PID collaborative that's led in led on the day AHA to try to kind of highlight certain things, including heat map for amputations by congressional districts. And there's try to kind of push it in wow, Congress yeah. to show them the amputation rates. And there's bills <laughs> coming through, uh, you know, sponsored by by members of Congress who's going to look into it, try to kind of, you know, hopefully at some point we can get, uh, you know, um, you know, payments for, um, you know, screening for ABIs and such. And so 
I mean, there are a lot of lot of work that can be done, and I think maybe this could be a chance to to highlight some of these efforts and talk about them more, and maybe get some more groups together to work together. And I hope that everybody uh, tries to find the positives on it, try not to kind of miss an opportunity to, to reach across and and bring down the silos to kind of better the patients. Very well spoken. Yeah, Doctor Arco, any other last comments? Yeah, I thought his last comment was excellent as well. The only thing I would say with regards to the article is uh, I did find it to be, you know, uh, dividing among specialties uh, and sort of towards that end, there was some, you know, all specialties maybe have some training in it. This (laughs) is, this has to go well above and beyond, you know, what vascular surgery has to offer, which is, you know, one component of the care of these patients, which is a, which is a bypass and, and, you know, a certain number of the patients. And we just don't have the, in my personal opinion, we just don't have the manpower uh, for vascular surgeons to take care of all these patients. And then to try to to divide us like that, I just think was wrong. And I think we can do a better job. And, you know, if you take a look at where the majority of the vascular surgeons are, they're all in large cities. Uh, I've worked in the middle of the country, albeit in a big city, Dallas, Texas, but I got a lot of referrals from areas that were two, three, four hours away that had no vascular surgeons and everything was being cared for by general surgeons cardiac surgeons, radiologists, and cardiologists, for which they're not the cardiac surgeons, but the other three groups, there are a lot more than there are vascular surgeons. And to be honest with you, they do a pretty good job for what they can do in those in those small cities. And until we can get a, a larger group of vascular surgeons to say, I want to go out and work in a town of 20,000, with the nearest referring city three hours away, uh, I think we have to be more inclusive uh, for the management of peripheral arterial disease and and CLTI and really work as a group. There's just too many of these patients to manage, and we've got to do a better job of recognizing it early, getting them in the hands of those who can treat it, uh, whether you're a cardiologist, a a radiologist, uh, or a vascular surgeon. I see very good care from from each one of those groups. And I, I think there should have been a little bit more emphasis on the fact that because there's so much disease and the OBL and the ASC can take care of these patients in a much more efficient way than a hospital and the government is pushing it towards that, all we need is probably some regulations, some changes in the payment, and these systems actually, I think, can work very, very well for these patients in the in the long term. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you both for this fantastic discussion. We are going to link to both the New York Times article and the ProPublica article, uh, as well as the SVS and the OEIS response uh, in the show notes for anybody who's interested. And yeah, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong. 
Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 